This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, what's been going on this week? In case it's escaped anyone's attention, the pandemic is raging on, although there have been changes to self-isolation rules for certain key workers. But we actually lost a guest for this show at the last minute because of this pandemic. And it does feel like, even in this time of supposedly lighter restrictions, COVID's still having a massive impact on people's lives. But the number of infections is now steadily falling. So let's hope, as some experts are predicting, that the end really is in sight. What else has been going on? Over in Japan, there's been lots more gold medals for Team GB at the COVID-proof Olympics. LGBTQ plus icon Tom Daly won his first ever gold in the men's synchro 10-metre platform diving with his partner, Matty Lee. And afterwards, my favourite bit, actually even better than the dive, was when he told reporters that he was both proud to be an Olympic champion and a gay man. And it wasn't all about Tom Daly. There was another landmark moment for our community at the Games. Skateboarder Alana Smith made history as the first non-binary athlete to compete for Team USA. But they were misgendered multiple times by the commentators, despite having their pronouns written on their board. Away from the Olympics, there was some more negativity directed at our community in the form of comments made by rapper DaBaby about HIV. We're not going to repeat them here, as not only were they horrible and nasty, but the information he gave wasn't even correct, as Elton John later pointed out in a tweet. So let's focus instead on all the outrage his comments stirred up. Dua Lipa, who's collaborated with him, condemned the comments, and he was dropped from an ad campaign by clothing line Boohoo. And if all these responses actually raised awareness of the realities of HIV, then let's hold on to the positive and not give DaBaby any more airtime. Daphne and Fred Rapper, anyway. Anyway, let's crack on with the show. As usual, everyone's welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I'm on at Matt Kane Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. So please do get stuck in. Now, who've we got on today's show? My first guest is Sophia Blackwell. She's a poet with three published collections under her belt. She's performed her work at the Glastonbury Festival and the South Bank Centre, as well as headlining a national tour. She's also a radio presenter, hosting the LGBTQ Plus show out in South London on Resonance FM. I hope she's not going to come for my job. Last time she was on the show, we discussed everything ranging from football to marriage, so we're hoping for more of the same today. 
Sophia and I are going to be joined by Lewis Oakley. He's a bisexual activist and writer, having written for publications including Metro, The Daily Mail and The Telegraph, as well as having appeared on ITV News, Sky News and BBC Three. His mission is to give a voice to men who date people, not genders, actively combating the social prejudices around bisexual people. He also, on that subject, co-hosts the popular podcast Bisexual Brunch. And this is what we're going to be discussing. Firstly, if you could come out of the closet all over again, what would you do differently? And what did you learn from the experience that you'd like to pass on to other people who are about to come out? Secondly, has social media predominantly been a force for division in the LGBTQ plus community? Thirdly, are queer relationships just the same as straight cis ones? As you heard, that question made my voice go slightly shrill. If they're not the same, is there anything each of the different communities can learn from the others? And finally, for a bit of light relief, we'll be talking about holidays. With COVID travel restrictions easing further, but so much confusion and uncertainty still around, how do we feel about going on holiday this summer? And if so, where are we hoping to go to? The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Sophia Blackwell and Lewis Oakley. How are you guys today? Good, thank you. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for inviting me. There was a little pause there before you replied. I was worried you were going to say something else. <laughs> no, I'm happy to be here. I'm hoping we're getting a Sunday roast after this. Like, that was kind of the, the whole reason I came. I thought it was a free roast. So we'll see. I'll see what I can rustle up, I promise. I'm going to be chatting to the both of you in between our debates, find out what you're up to. But we're going to get straight down to business with our first topic. And that is coming out. We've all got things to say about coming out for nearly everyone in the LGBTQ plus community. Coming out isn't just something we do once. It's a process and it doesn't stop. But the first time we come out is usually the most difficult. So I'll be asking you two, if you could come out all over again, what would you do differently? And what did you learn from the experience that you'd pass on to other people who are about to come out? So, Sophia, when you look back on your coming out experience or experiences, the first ones, do you think, oh, I got it wrong, I wish I'd done it differently? Or what are your feelings? Well, Matt, I knew I was gay from quite a young age, about sort of 12 or 13 or so. So I always knew there was going to be a bit of a wait until I could come out properly. And at the time, the Bible that was just 17 used to say, don't label yourself, which, as I know, labels is something we speak about a lot, but you're only ever used to hear, don't label yourself, give it time. And I spent years listening to that. And I wish I'd actually trusted my intuition because I was 17 and... None of it had gone away and I'd spent a long time telling the odd person. So at some point, by the time I'd got to that 17 years old and I had my first girlfriends, some people knew in my family and my friends and some people didn't. And, you know, keeping it all straight in a manner of speaking was really <laughs> difficult because some people knew. In some cases, I was kind of fudging it and saying, oh, the person who sent me flowers on Valentine's Day was a guy or whatever. I couldn't keep any of the stories in that's mind. Quite, um, that's quite a stress to live with, isn't it, on a day-to-day -day basis? 
It was, yeah, as if, you know, adolescence isn't tough enough. So I wish I'd been less ambiguous about the whole thing because I knew who I was and I would say whenever I work with young people in schools as part of charity initiatives such as diversity role models and so on, my advice would be ensure that you're in a place where you feel safe and that's kind of always the the paramount thing for me. But otherwise, I would say, you know, trust your intuition, trust what you feel like. It's probably true. But if you say you wish you'd been less ambiguous about it, at the time, um, you must have made those decisions for valid reasons. You must have been kind of testing the water around you and kind of gauging how the news would go down. I was, yeah, which is perfectly normal for somebody that age. And I think looking back on it, that's quite understandable. And I forgive myself for doing it. I just wish that it's just kind of about the signals that you put out into the world, really. Now we can afford to be open about what we are and therefore something positive potentially comes back to us and when you're in a situation where you can't do that the signals that you're giving out get a bit muddled so people might not necessarily know how to respond to you another thing was when I was 17 18 I went to a fortune teller and she told me that when I went to college I would meet the man who might become my husband and I did I just didn't marry him because I'm a massive lesbian (laughs) (laughs) right so Lewis talking about ambiguity and how we put stuff out there so Sophia's experience was not ruled by fear, but there were fears directing it a bit. How about your... And actually, I've said experience in the singular, but actually, for Sophia, it was a series of experiences. Yeah, well, bisexuals are always coming out. Um, Even now, as I walk down the street with my baby and my fiancé, who happens to be um, female, (laughs) I I look straight. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it's a lifetime of coming out for bisexuals. Um, I'm going to change some names as well. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about um... (laughs) about an an unnamed family member. That's what I often do. A family member that won't be named. Right, so here's the thing. What I will say for for bisexuals is, and this is just from talking to bisexuals, I have no stats on this, but I think bisexuals by and large realise their sexuality a lot later than gay and lesbian people. I think, and I theorise, this has something to do with when you're at school and all the other boys or girls start being like, oh, the opposite gender, they're sexy, aren't they? That might be the first time you're like, no. And then and then you maybe figure it out. Whereas when the other boys at school are saying she's hot, isn't she? I'm like, yeah, she is. And looking back, I was like, well, did, did bisexuality just happen when I was 19? No, I think I always was attracted to the boys. But because it wasn't talked about or whatever, I just kind of interpreted that as like, I want to be like them. Or I want them to be my friends. Really, I just wanted to kiss them, but didn't really realise what that feeling was. So for me, it was a lot later. And I think for a lot of people, it it can kind of be a lot later um, that are bisexual. So um, there I am, innocent little boy and 19 in London. Come here. Everyone's kissing each other. You're kind of going around Soho. It's like, what is this world? And I want to do that too. And then it's kind of, well, what does this mean? And I had gay friends and I wouldn't tell them that I was secretly going off with, with other guys. So I just was not... I think for me, it was like, I wasn't really sure. I knew that I was attracted to women. Now I knew I was attracted to men. What did this, what did this mean? And you kind of like, you know, you're like, oh, my friend, um, you know, went home with a guy last night. But he's always been with guys. And your gay friends would be like, well, he's gay, isn't he? He just needs to come out. And it's like, ah. So even in the LGBT community, it's seen as... And it's a very interesting, it's a very misogynistic thing, is basically your attraction to men is what defines you. It's uh, it's, yeah, it's, that's it's that element of it. it. Um, 
so anyway, look, I, I, I eventually told some friends. I remember telling two of my female straight friends first and they were like, oh my God. And it was it was a really lovely moment. Um, did tell a family member because I had a boyfriend at the time and, he, and you know, it's gay guys. They're like, <laughs> they're like, your family already know. They're just waiting for you to tell them. So tell them. And I was like, I don't think they do. Um, so I kind of like told um, a family member like, look, um, I'm dating this guy. And, and it just did not go well. And that kind of scared me back into a... Because you know when people have egged you on? And it's like, come on, just do it. It's fine. And then you do it and it goes just as badly as you thought. And you're like, see? I know people. <laughs> I knew that this was going to go that way. Um, so those were the first early experiences before I properly came out fully. Well, interesting that you say um, being frightened of telling your gay friends. Because I can remember when I was fighting the gayness within me, which I, like Sophia, had recognised from a very young age and had other kids tell me, just in case I was in, you know, any doubt about it. Um, I was nervous being around other gay people who were older. I, do you know what I mean? I felt a bit exposed and um, disarmed by their gayness. So was that the same with you? Or were you worried about telling them that you were bisexual because you thought you'd be judged for that. Yeah, I I, I, I mean, it's a huge thing. There are statistics on that, that the LGBT is the most common place that you'll, you'll run into biphobia. And a lot of... And I think that the issue is it's a vicious circle, right? So a lot of gay men will come out as bisexual as they kind of, like, test the water on the way out. And then what happens is then that, that's their kind of journey. And everyone sees their own journey their own way. It's like, well, for me, it was a phase. Um, and then they run into a, a bisexual person. And they just like, oh, you know, and maybe it comes from a compassionate place where they're like, oh, I said that before, you know, like, you know, you just need to come out fully. Like, you know, I did it. It's hard. I know, blah, blah. I don't think it's actually malicious, but they did do a really limited study on the whole issue before. And they found that a lot of pe- a lot of gay men that did come out as bisexual didn't believe they were bisexual at the time. Yeah, so then yeah, you get yeah. bisexual people that are like, so not only are you the reason there's stigma that bisexuals end up gay, you're now enforcing it? Well, so, can, so, I, can I just say... I, I, not in a judgy <laughs> way. I'm not judging it. I'm just saying that's, know, that's, the, that's the situation. I never came out as bisexual um, to soften the blow or to test the water. But you're right. I do know gay men who did that. And then um, I don't know whether those gay men are then guilty of judging other bisexuals through the prism of their own experience. Did you come out as bisexual on your way to coming out as a lesbian, Sophia? I didn't. I fell in love with a man when I was 27. Um, and it oh my didn't God, this, before that. This is taking the, this is taking the discussion in a, in a direction I really wasn't no, expecting. Absolutely. Um, one, basically. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't change the way I identify but I am really glad that Lewis is here today so we can talk about some of these things because they've been very much uppermost in my mind recently and no I didn't because I was really unambiguous that I fancied girls and I think girls do also have a bit of a stigma you know the whole buy now gay later or gay until graduation and I went to college with a lot of gay until graduation girls uh, who fit that mold entirely and then ended up with a guy what I now think looking back is that I shouldn't have erased their bisexuality by buying into that sort of 
bumper sticker thing and going, oh, they're straight now. Because looking back, they might not have been. So can I ask you, sorry, this is slightly going off topic, but Sophia, when you were in a relationship with a man when you were 27, did you still identify as a lesbian? I did, yes. And it was very strange. I don't know if you've seen, again, the wonderful Russell T Davies. I think this piece, um, Bob and Rose by him, the film. Oh, I loved that. Me I too. loved it. It was like that. And, you know, Bob doesn't identify as bi, but it's not something that I dismiss out of hand. You know, my sexuality is an evolving thing and I'm happy to use it. I just find that lesbian describes me a bit more accurately. That's what resonates with me. And um, Lewis, I was going to... So you said earlier that you have to keep coming out as bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I was you. I was going to ask you about when you were... But I know you're in a relationship. When you were going on dates... Um, with a member of either the same or the opposite sex, um, did you, what was your policy for telling them that you were also attracted to the other sex? Oh, that's a good question. So it, it evolved, right? So basically, you know, at 19, I was kind of like figuring it out. I then went into a, two, a two and a half relationship with a guy. Um, and all that time being like, I am bisexual, but I, I don't think people really understood it. <laughs> and then I was then single before I met my, my now fiance. Um, and it was it was kind of a process because I kind of um, at first I was kind of like loud about it as in like you know I'd be I'd be telling you know people about it and and the gay guys didn't really mind but the straight cisgender women were like <gasps> um, and you never heard from them again so then I was kind of like oh <laughs> in a weird way and this is this is a common thing with bisexual guys it was, it was a little bit like well. If I don't like let them buy into me as a person before my sexuality. Like, I may as well just be gay because no girl's going to date me. <laughs> so then it was kind of like, oh, well, let's just like get to know each other a little bit first and then kind of like let them know. Um, but then what I really got a bit annoyed at in the end, so it, it kind of went full circle, was like I, w- I would really be getting on with a, with a girl um, and then I, I would tell her. And I remember there was this one that just kind of sticks in my mind for some reason where we were getting on really well and I was like, we, we kind of had a date all lined up and I was like just before like we get there I do just want you to know like I- I'm bisexual I hope that's okay and she said like, that's perfectly fine however I realised I'm still in love with my ex-boyfriend so I'm going to have to cancel the date and it was like nicely played not um, <laughs> but that really irritated me to the point where I was like you know what I- I'm not going to play a straight or gay character to find love so then I just put it on my dating profile at the time I was like I'm bisexual if that's a problem just swipe on because it's not my responsibility to, to sell you on it and did you find when you, that when you told girls you were bisexual, they were more or less understanding than when you told boys that you were potentially dating? Girls, straight cis girls were less understanding. And I think that there's research on that. I think it's something like only 18% of straight cis girls would date a guy that's had sex with another man. I think they, they put it like that. Um, where on the, here's the thing, on the, but this is not giving like gay guys a pass as well, because I do think gay guys are like, well, I don't, it's basically well you're still gonna sleep with me it doesn't really matter what your label is if that makes sense (laughs) that's like what doesn't bother me (laughs) yeah so it's not so much yeah so it's it's a label for them but but if they were looking for a relationship then that is a different thing isn't it well look surely the the person's whole identity is relevant when you're talking about a relationship with them rather than just sleeping with them listen when I was with my ex who shall remain nameless um one of the moments that really sticks out for me that irritates me to this day, and it was because, and I know we'll come on to this probably a bit more as we talk about coming out, I wasn't ready to defend 
my sexuality at the time. Um, and I remember one of his best friends who he lived with said to me like, oh, well, you don't get any bisexuals over 30, do you? So you'll eventually have to pick one. And I was so unconfident at the time. I was like, yeah, I guess. And it's irritated me to this day that I didn't de defend myself and my sexuality. Well, and you're doing it now. You're I'm doing it, it now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a bit about my experience now. So we're thinking, is there anything you would have done differently? So it's difficult when you talk about an experience that was quite a long time ago because the context has changed so much. And when I came out, um, it's pre-social media, pre-mobile phones are certainly being wi in widespread use. And you could keep a secret. So it's interesting what you said, Sophia, about doing it in stages. I did it in stages. I told close friends when I was 18, siblings when I was 19, 20, and then parents at 21. And you weren't necessarily, you could keep things more contained. When I went away to university, you weren't worried about things being on social media. And, you know, it was, it was easier. So in terms of things I do differently, um, there's not much, actually, and not much that's relevant now in terms of how much the context has changed. The only thing I will say is there's one or two friends, um, and actually with my brother, I remember um, telling them when we'd been drinking. And in each case, so the, the time it happened with a friend that I wasn't very happy about, they asked me directly. And I always had a policy of not lying. And when I was out with my brother, it kind of came up. Um, but I wish I was I was ready in each situation, but not um, in that moment. So one piece of advice I would give is if you can avoid it, um, don't do it when you've been drinking. I mean, one or two to take the edge off. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Lewis? Any advice that you could give? Do it when you're ready. Um, I I actually really, I have a bit of an issue with lying to, well, not lying to people. I know it's all said in, in good faith, but being like, come out, it's better. It's not always better, actually. Um, so some people, it can really mess up their lives. And I get a lot of emails, and I know we'll come onto this later, but I get a lot of emails from bisexual guys that are married. And it's like, I can't just be like, yeah, come out, your wife's going to love it. And if she doesn't, she's a biphobe. It's, it's very complicated. Um, so I would say, come out when you feel ready. And for me, when I knew I was ready was when I was kind of at the point where I was like, look, if you, I'm not going to play a straight or a gay character for you. And if that's a problem, then you can go because it's probably just the tip of an iceberg of a bad person. And that, and but it took ages and years and lots of failed attempts at coming out for me to be ready to be like, right, I'm ready now, and I'm I'm willing to take the consequences. All right, Sophia, you said earlier you would avoid ambiguity and you'd be much more direct and and straight talking. I almost said, did say. Um, is there is there any more general advice that you would give to people who are thinking about coming out now? I think that Lewis made an interesting point and the it gets better narrative, as you say, is not always relevant to bi people. It's probably the least least relevant to, to bi people. But I remember when that song came out and I was standing watching all of these, you know, earnest lesbians singing It Gets Better. And I was in a really bad place in my life at the time. And I was thinking, whenever you're ready, you know, <laughs> like, please let it get better at some point soon. But it is now. And so I think being having the opportunity to be true to yourself and the privilege to be true to yourself is a wonderful thing. Uh, I 
struggle a bit with days like National Coming Out Day because it basically also reminds me of people in different parts of the world and indeed different parts of the UK who can't come out. And I don't think that we should make it all like, you know, that Keith Haring figure of somebody smashing out of a closet and like, this is what gay looks like. I think gay and bi can look like a lot of things. All right. So um, a lot of things. We've got a lot of listeners who have got in touch to share their um, varied experiences. Dan on Instagram, I'm sure many people would say this, but I would come out earlier. William on Twitter, that's very tricky. I came out very late to my family because we're part of the traveller community. So again, this is, as you know, as you were saying, Sophia, it is more complicated than people make out. He says, and prejudice runs quite deep culturally. I just didn't feel safe doing it any earlier. However, I wish I had trusted my friends more with all of who I am. Jim on Twitter says, do it. I came out at 16 and don't regret a thing. Biggest bit of advice is don't worry about what friends think about you. Good friends stay. Rubbish friends weren't worth your time in the first place. So you mentioned earlier, Lewis, about a family member who wasn't very positive when you came out. I had the same experience. And most gay men that I know... um, you know, of roughly around my age, who have a good relationship with their family, because times were so different back then, they have been on a journey and we have had to forgive certain things. And actually, funnily enough, I was looking at Tom Daly's coming out video again recently. You know, he's been the man of the moment. He talks about um, negative reactions from within his family. Um, We often have to swallow things and move on and work with it. Um, What was your experience with this family member and what would you advise people who think they may have problematic family members? At what stage do we stop engaging with them and just pull up the drawbridge? Oh, it's a very tricky one. I think the answer is probably it kind of depends. You need to know the people in your own family and and what they're motivated by. It might be religion. It could be culture. It could be just, you know, the way they were raised. Who knows? So there's, there's many different things. I think for me... When I originally came out, I I feel that that person could sense that I wasn't confident um, and it wasn't the right time for me to be coming out. When I actually came out properly a few years later, they didn't say anything because it was like they they could sense I was too confident and that I was ready for a fight. And and now it's like, okay, do you want to say something? Because we'll go if you want to go. So that (laughs) goes so that goes back to what Sophia was saying about ambiguity. But actually, when you're so what you described was the process of coming out to yourself first, which a lot of people talk about. And that is very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, it's hard to be confident when you're still coming out to yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. I, th- I think that's what, what, why I'm saying, like, d- don't feel for... You will know. My only advice is you will know. You will know when it's the right time to come out. All right. Sophia, Hugh on Twitter says, do it at your own speed. Don't let anyone you come out to pressure pressure you into telling anyone you don't feel ready to yet. Remember, it's your story to tell in your own words. Signpost anyone who struggles to accept it to information, but never apologise. Um, we've got Miggy on Twitter says, I wouldn't wait until I was 26. I would have done it at school when the bullies called me gay and puff. I would now say, yeah, so what? Rather than, um, no, I'm not. Um, that would have taken the wind from their sails and allowed me to grow sooner. What do you think about those comments? I think they're a mix of common sense. And as you say, Matt, your experience was also informed by the context of your life. When it happened, what your family members thought. And as you say, they've been on a journey. If it were all happening now with the social media, with the 
enormous step change in people's attitudes that we've seen over the, the past few years even, things would look different. But I think we have to be kind to ourselves and say these things happened in 1997 or these things happened in 1982. I don't think that we necessarily need to, you know, judge ourselves by standards that were not around when we were young. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, we've talked about family members not responding positively. What about friends? So lots of allies think that they must react in a certain way. For example, playing it down is not a big deal when actually coming out is a huge deal for so many people. What would you say to somebody who um, fancies themselves as an ally? What's the best way for them to react when someone they know and love comes out, would you say, Lewis? Oh, it's, a, it's a tricky one because we are in a different world. I think we're all changing and trying to figure out what's the right thing. Because sometimes I see things, I'm like, oh, if someone did that to me, I'd find it really patronising. Which, But I'm not saying the extreme opposite of like, get out, we don't want to see you ever again is what I want. I think somewhere in the middle. I don't know, when I came out to... Well, when my friends first saw my bisexuality in action, which was after I left my ex-boyfriend and was kind of like going around kissing lots of different people, I remember there was a group chat. I met a girl in GAY bar and we were outside and we were kissing. Um, and one of my friends at the time took a picture of that and put it on the group chat and was like, a gay being seduced in Soho, disgusting. And everyone was like agreeing. And so I read that the next morning, I was like, oh my God, if I had taken a picture of you two kissing and been like two men kissing, disgusting, how would you have felt? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so so don't don't put people, don't put your friends kissing on, on WhatsApp. <laughs> There's some actionable advice. Right, we need, to, we need to wind things up and I want to be positive. You know, so can we talk about why it's so brilliant to come out, assuming you don't have specific issues? Would we agree that, um, you know, sometimes we can build up objections in our heads and convince ourselves it can only end in disaster. But actually, for the majority of people, even if they have a tough time coming out, they don't regret it. Is that been the experience of people in your circles? I would say so. I think it's, you know, kind of mentally going through this person, that person, what was their experience? But even out of my friends whose parents have struggled for cultural or religious reasons, it's often worked out for the best. It's more often worked out for the best than the idea of somebody sitting in silence and not being their full self. I, I can't really imagine anything much worse than that, to be honest. I'll tell you what, um, I'm going to read one more comment from a listener, Marcus on Twitter. Go to an LGBTQ plus group and get a mentor or a good friend. Actually, um, this is when being part of a community can really come into its own. Listening to other people's stories and actually the online community that we've got available now, you know, where you don't necessarily have to identify yourself. You can do it anonymously. That's a good resource, isn't it, Lewis, for somebody wanting to come out now? It totally is. There's a lot of people, especially in the bi space, that are, that are out online and it's their only outlet and it's their way that they can kind of connect with with other people so it's 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 yeah that that that's one thing i'll give to online it's good for people it's an avatar for coming out i guess we're going to talk about more about online later mm -hmm. so just wrapping up coming out let's say there's no right or wrong way to come out we've all said you've 
got to choose what's right for you. You don't have to do it on your own, as I was just saying. Listen to other people's stories, whether that's online or fellow radio Virgin Radio Pride DJ Emma Goswell has written a brilliant book on the subject, Coming Out Stories, which brings together lots of people's stories. I would say to people, don't go into it with any uncertainty. Make sure you're ready. You have no doubt you're doing the right thing. But as we have hinted, we need to point out that if you think coming out may lead to parental rejection, violence, or being made homeless, do seek professional help before taking the plunge. Search for Stonewall or AKT online, formerly the Albert Kennedy Trust, or call Switchboard on 0300 330 or look up support services in your local area. And good luck. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Now, Lewis Oakley, we're going to have a little chat with you in between our debates. You've devoted much of your professional life to helping reduce the stigma around bisexuality. We've discussed your identity, um, your sexuality already, and particularly the stigma around bisexual men. You've written for loads of different publications. Was this inspired by your own personal experience? Was there was there one thing that made you think, I need to do something about this? Totally. So, Well, everything kind of aligned. So it all kind of came out. And my God, I feel like I'm in witness protection program here because I have to keep changing everyone's name and like not, not naming people. <laughs> this is how it started. I was kind of ready to come out. Um, I was in a bar with some friends and one of their friends came and... I kind of said that I was dating a girl. He was like, oh, honey, you're gayer than me. And I went off like a bomb and just like, was like, you should know better, blah, blah. Said all my spiel. And he was like, that's really good. I've never heard someone make these arguments before. You should write an article. So, and he was like, and you should write it for my site. So I wrote an article on this small little site, Metro, um, Metro, the, the newspaper, someone there must have read it and was like, can you write one for us? And that was where I was kind of like, oh, this isn't some small LGBT site. If I write this, everyone will know, which was actually how I kind of came out more widely. I was like, right, well, they said it's going up on Thursday. So if I don't tell everyone by Thursday, they're going to read about it in the news. <laughs> and it was great because that that just I was ready to be out. I just didn't have the backbone or the, I, I need I, sometimes I need people to put pressure on me to get stuff done anyway. Um, that was kind of it. That was all I planned to do. I was like, I, I've got my anger out now. I've said my piece. That's it. What happened, which was really interesting, was I started getting emails and sometimes postcards from men all around the world, not just in the UK, that were like, oh my God, like, I've never heard it articulated like this. And like, thank you. And I, you know, I'm married and I'm 45 years old. And I, I, I reading it, this has made me feel this way. Isn't it unbelievable that in this day and age or a few years ago, discussing bisexuality was a revelation to people they'd never heard it was and i think especially for people as we were kind of talking about earlier uh, when you grew up in a different time so for bi- you know it's di- different for every aspect of the lgbt but say if you were looking specifically at bisexual men if you were a bisexual guy and then you fell in love with a, a woman in a time where the world was even more homophobic you're probably like, well i'll just take this to my grave now you're kind of seeing a, a world where actually people are living their truth their full identity and you kind of wake up one day being like my God, like, does my wife love me for who I am or the straight character I play? And will I, do I want to die not knowing? Um, so, so there's a lot in that. And what I, I always joke that I, I don't have many followers. You know what I mean? Like, but actually, I think I have the, the most followers that they're just in the closet. The, there are people that don't feel that like they could like a post that I do or oh, or comment on it. 
I feel, but my inbox, I, I regularly get like emails or DMs now. Like DMs is a thing. I used to get more emails. Now it's all DMs. So like, uh, you know, I'm I, even sometimes from street people, like, I'm dating a guy that's bi. So, and I always do my absolute best to get back to people. Always saying like, you know, I'm no expert. I just happen to be a bisexual person that just is except, mouthing off about it. But in my opinion, this except is... Except <laughs> you are slightly an expert. I mean, I didn't realise you were doing such a... Pu- on such a public service drive. But you do have um, to be replying to everybody individually. But you're probably going to be inundated after this. But you do have your podcast and just having gone it bisexual brunch, having gone into all these topics in depth, kind of does make you... Are you are you happy being labelled an expert on bisexuality? Oh, I don't know because as we'll probably get onto in a bit, like my bisexuality is my way, and I'm only giving my interpretation of my bisexuality. I don't speak for other bisexuals, and everyone's bisexuality is. I think that's part of the issue of what we've had over the time with de- defining bisexuality. Is it looks so different? You you, you know what I mean? And this is not being rude to say gay men, for example, but. A man dating another man, you can kind of sum it up, and and the experiences are kind of similar. Whereas, you know, a bisexual could never have had sex with, at all; they could be a virgin, you know what I mean? Or, yeah, or yeah, they could yeah. be anywhere on that scale, and or they could just have had that one experience or that one love. And it's it's very complicated. So, no, I would not call myself an expert. I'm just I'm just simple Lewis Oakley talking about his bisexuality <laughs> and his experiences. It is interesting, though, isn't it? Because over my forty six years on this earth, I have noticed attitudes and awareness of gayness getting much much better. Um, talking to you here today about bisexuality, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. What would you, what are the things that still really rile you? If you could smash one stereotype or prejudice, what would it be? Oh, there, there's so many. I, I don't think we can really narrow it down. I think, you know, the whole idea of it being a phase is still really big. And I do think that that takes some tackling from lots of angles, not just, you know, biphobic or by ignorant people but also by bisexuals so you know i'm now engaged two kids i'm more vocal than ever because i i i don't want someone to be like well you don't get any bisexuals after 30 do you like i i want like to not be defined by the person i happen to be with and, and their gender that they happen to be um i think um the idea that the lgbt has bisexuals backs equally that that's a stigma that needs to be tackled because they don't spend money in the way they do they don't look at bisexual issues in the way that they should be um and it's kind of when someone elects themselves in charge of your care and does a bad job of it i think we need to call that out um (laughs) so but there's lots of different issues but i think we're getting there and what's really interesting as well is like i I've had straight people come up to me about articles i've written being like oh my god that was really interesting gay people as well so I hope I'm I'm making a little dent in my own little way. And I think the podcast now, that is becoming strangely successful. It was really weird. So I've got I've got some young friends, right, who always rib me of like, your social media is terrible. You've only got this many followers. And did you see that post? It was pixelated. Like, they're always ribbing me. And one of them has got a podcast. And he was talking about his downloads the other day. Well, this was a couple of, a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, we're now at this many downloads. And I was like, I don't even know how many downloads our podcast gets. I asked, and I it was like double what he was getting. And I was like, oh, I beat you on something. And I was like, actually, it's really interesting to know that people are liking long-form discussion about bisexuality. Because I, I don't think that people are getting it in certain places. And in terms of you as a commentator, rather than what you're commenting on, do you prefer, what kind of forum do you prefer? Do you like 
writing more or do you like audio, radio, podcasting? Where do you want to take your public service drive in the future, Lewis? What's well, it's next? really interesting. I f- well, the world is changing, right? So I used to be able to write articles and they used to be read by gay, straight, bi people. And that was really useful because I do think it it made a lot of people think, right? Nowadays, people really can... I, I got into masses of trouble the other day on Twitter because of an article I wrote that was two years old. And I was like, oh my God. God, you've dug this up. Like, are you were mad at me at the time that I wrote this article. Um, we'll probably come on to that in the whole social media thing. But anyway, um, so the thing with the bisexual brunch is usually it's people that want to want to hear about bisexuals. They want to hear bisexuals talking, which is great. So it kind of feels like more of a safe space. You're you're amongst other bisexuals. We can disagree with each other, and it's it's okay to be wrong. You know what I mean? Um, we're just having a discussion. Whereas I feel like now with with writing articles, it's like you better bloody proof this because people are going to attack it from all angles and actually I think it's quite sad because it's like but I I I know that these articles they might not be perfect yeah I might get things wrong and I might not include every single thing because they said you've got to make it 800 words um but they do change minds so yeah, I I, yeah. I want to keep going with it but it is it is trickier to do the articles than it is the podcast where I can just chat about what I think and not have to go through with like a, a highlighter and be like, well, that could be taken the wrong way. Okay, final question. When you came in here, you asked if I was going to give you a Sunday roast. Yeah. When you do your bisexual brunch, do you serve brunch? We don't. <laughs> so this is the thing. I've just, my whole life, I'm doing things on the promise of food and not getting it. In fairness, the whole thing is like, oh, well, there was a pandemic. So, <laughs> so we, we've had to That's- do this from our homes. I'm like, well, you can still deliver it to me. <laughs> That's my excuse too. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. My delightful panel, Sophia Blackwell and Lewis Oakley, are still with me. And we're now going to be talking about social media. So, not a day goes by that we don't see LGBTQ plus people tearing into each other on social media. And fighting within our community is an issue that's come up again and again on this show. But the question is now, has social media specifically, has it been a force predominantly for division within the LGBTQ plus community? I am delighted to be joined by Riyad Khalaf. Riyad is a TV and radio broadcaster. He's an online video creator and an LGBTQ plus activist. He's perhaps best known for fronting the groundbreaking BBC doc series Queer Britain, as well as Radio 1's comedy podcast Unexpected Fluids. He's also an author and his sensational book Yay, You're Gay, Now What? was released in May 2019 and became a well-deserved bestseller. Riyadh, thank you for joining us. Oh my God, what an intro. My head is going to explode. I love you. (laughs) You deserve every word of it. Now, so you made your name online. We're talking about social media. You made your name posting videos to YouTube. These were often linked with your sexuality. For example, your incredibly emotional coming out story. We were talking about this earlier on the show. Or the video about your mum reading your grinder messages. So what I would love to know is, at first, did you find it difficult sharing information about your sexuality online and putting so much exposing Mm. content out there? That's such a good question, Matt, because my motivation to go online in the first place was to find a safe space 
where I, I didn't have it in school. I didn't necessarily have it at home. I was closeted. I had this dark secret that I was terrified of. And the internet was this outlet for creativity, campness, and really whatever I wanted to do. And at the time, because YouTube was in such an infant stage, it wasn't this big, widely used website that everyone knew and liked. It was, it was, I think, only two years old at the time. So I was putting stuff up kind of thinking, you know, maybe five or six people will see this. But then as it started to grow, so did my sort of confidence in who I was. And I started to, you know, talk about other issues like, you know, attraction and sexuality. And even before I was talking about that, the, the, the trolls online had sort of figured out that there was something about me that they didn't like, that I had sort of um, I had gay energy, if you will. And they started laying into me. Now, I didn't know who they were, where they were, but um, it was really hard at the age of 16 to deal with death threats from these faceless profiles saying, we are going to get you. We know where you live. And then going into school and looking over your shoulder and thinking, is it him? Is it her? And, Riyadh, how did you deal with this if you were so young mm. and, you know, that online community was in its infancy, as you mm. say, there, there wasn't much of a community for you to draw on. How did you deal with it? So I, I dealt with it by going uh, inward. I, I kind of hid this secret myself. Um, I, uh, it was really tough because it, it had a hugely detrimental impact on my education, on my relationships. Um, on my general development as a young mind because I wasn't focusing on learning and, and playing with friends. I was focusing on trying to cloak this thing. So um, I, I ended up going to the police and um, I secretly, without telling my parents, and I uh, did, gave a statement that basically, you know, outed the trolls and said, I need help. And because the internet was in its infancy, they turned around to me and said, look, it's really bad that this is happening, but we can't do anything about it. So we suggest as the guardie, that's what the police are called here, that you just stop making videos, go offline and um, it'll go away. And so I, I had to remove myself from what was such a nurturing, warm environment, apart from the trolls because of that. Right. So can I just say, there's so many things that you've said there that I want to pick up on. But mm. um, because we can't be here all day, I'm going to try and steer it back to the topic that we're discussing. You've yeah. talked about the trolls. Um, have you ever had people from within our community um, yes. attacking you online? And in terms yes. of the emotional impact this has on you, how does that differ yes. to when it's people outside the community? It's such a good question. I find that in the early days when I was 16 online, it was all um, straight cisgender trolls, people who didn't like queer people because they were afraid of it. And as time has gone on and the Internet's become more of a, an accessible thing, um, I, I find that actually a lot of the hate comes from within the community. And I think that it's a really difficult question to answer because I find some of the um calling out some of the questioning of ideas really fundamentally important to how we move forward as a community if it's just one way or the highway with no nuance no conversation um then i think that we're going down a dangerous road i i think it's important to disagree but to disagree in a way that isn't um with malice or uh with the intention to cause harm or drag down or you know another uh, member of, of the family. And so 
I think that by and large, the the good that exists on online um, within the community supersedes the, the negative. There are always going to be some rogue, um, nasty voices out there. And I think that how we deal with that is by not um, attacking fire with fire necessarily. It's just coming at it with logic and love and um, mass uh, intervention. If, if there's more of us, we are the majority. What's difficult is when they attack you from outside the community, they often attack you for being gay, queer, LGBTQ+, whatever. When they attack you from within, they don't attack mm. you for being gay. They find other things to have a go at you. Which about. is harder. Yes. Which is harder. I know. Because... If someone is ta attacking you and they are a part of your community and you know that they've been through a similar struggle to you, I tend to subconsciously find myself listening to them so much more, taking on what they're saying so much more. I am so long in the tooth now. I've got such a thick skin that if a straight cisgender uh, numbskull troll comes at me because I'm gay, I just go, I, I yeah. put it aside. I don't even listen. I think it's very sad that you said that next. But if it's one of us, I, I actually dig a bit deeper and I go, why, why are we talking like this? It's um, horrible when it's one yeah. of us. Right, I want to bring in our ace panel. So, Sophia, um, are you, uh, do you have a thick skin? Um, you know, I would love to know. So I can remember, we're talking about this infighting in our community online. I can remember it being a problem before social media existed. I can remember gay men being bitchy about each other, making jokes about trans people, bisexual people, lesbians. Um, you know, what do you think? Can you remember the time before social media and the kind of infighting that there used to be? And how do you think it compares to what there is now? Oh, the before times, yes. Um, I do remember in, in the late 90s, yes, the boys and girls would fall out with each other and often t trans people didn't really have much of a, a voice at all. So that's not really something that I'd necessarily want to return to. I think some of that is to do with the fact that we don't always want the same things and it is that feeling of just because we all sit under this ever-extending umbrella of letters and colours that we should all want the same things and be the same and dream about the same things and that's just unrealistic so I think that hasn't changed what has changed is the fact that social media doesn't really allow for much humour much nuance or the opportunity to read something maybe react a little angrily to it in your own mind and then maybe go away and think actually maybe that person's right instead it's just you know listen to my hot take or maybe nobody wants your hot take <laughs> maybe you just go away and think about it for a bit you don't have to have an opinion on this that's one of the things that I'd love it. if somebody would just be comfortable saying I don't know about this I don't know what a trans yes. person wants I have no opinion on this I don't have enough knowledge I would love it I, that would make my day if I saw that on the internet I'd be delighted instead people just use this kind of hyper legalese type sir you have slandered me with your words sort of it's just like this isn't how people communicate this isn't how we talk to each other in the pub in the 90s or the noughties even the early part of the noughties so i think we've lost that um i completely agree and i can see that riyadh is looking delighted with sophia's comment there what do you think do oh. you always share opinions on everything online or do you sometimes think as i do i actually don't know anything about this i don't need to say anything this is it. And I, I have to say that I just was bursting to just go preach as you were saying it, because <laughs> well, I have I've had this rule in my head for the past couple of years as we've been through Black Lives Matter and um, issues with trans people that they're, that they're going through. And um, I, if I have an opinion 
that has already been shared more eloquently by someone else, particularly someone from that marginalized or attacked community, instead of replicating that because I want to be seen as a, a moralistic individual, I will either stay quiet and sit back and let the airspace be clear for the people who actually have something to say, lived experience to talk about, or I will try to give my platform as best I can to amplify that voice. And so, yes, that's such an important point that I think we need to, I don't know, make social media classes in schools to teach kids that, that actually it's okay to not always try to appear as um, something that is uh, something to be desired, you know, that this yes. sort of virtue signaling behavior. Absolutely. Right. We're going to be talking later, Lewis, about how to use our own social media channels in a more positive way. Um, but before we do that, um, you, we were talking earlier about biphobia, some of the things people have said to you as a bisexual man, the prejudice, the stereotypes. Do you find it's more pronounced on social media as maybe it seems less direct, a bit more detached for the person throwing the insult? There can be a bit more anonymous. Yeah, I mean, it dep I guess we're kind of talking about inside the community, right? Because the, the biphobia online, I mean, it's weird. People, aren't, biphobes aren't searching me. You know what I mean? That that the, They'll yeah. find me, that they'll let themselves known on the comments of articles. So on, on the, when I write for, say, a national news site that's got a comment section, that, that's where they'll let themselves be known. Not so much on the Twitter, if that makes sense. The yes. Twitter is just for the bisexuals who attack me. <laughs> and how does it feel to you being criticised from somebody without the community rather than within? Which one, which one gets to you more emotionally? Oh, the, the, the inside, of course. There I was writing for national news articles that have never even said the word bisexual. I'm like, oh, this is great. We've got we, we got the Daily Mail to talk about bisexuality. That's insane. And it's just like, and that you don't really expect it. You maybe maybe you're even believing your own hype a little bit at the beginning. And then, you know, the bisexual's like, who who do you think you are? Why is every article written about you? And then it's like, well, it's not meant to be, but it's just my experience. And it's just, yeah. I'm having a moment. They're, they're writing a load about me. Isn't this great? It's better they write about something. Okay, right. I'm going to have a little moment. I'm going to bring in a few listener comments. Reese on Instagram says, maybe without the limitations of physical space, social media creates a greater propensity for siloing which is isolating people. Paul on Facebook says, went to the question, has social media been predominantly a force for division in our community? Hugely so. I actually think it goes beyond LGBTQ plus people. I think just society in general, it's created huge divisions. It's become increasingly political because everyone now has a platform to air their views, thoughts and opinions. And it seems easier to vocalise your disagreements on any issue with someone from behind a keyboard. I don't think there would be anywhere near as many disagreements over, let's say, a dinner party. And then Hugh on Twitter, I wouldn't say predominantly. On the contrary, I can think of many examples of social media bringing people together who might not otherwise have met. I've made new friends, got involved with charities and groups and heard about queer cultural events that I might not otherwise have known about all through social media. So in that way, it's a force for good. Right, before we talk about how to use our own social media channels positively, let's just think about some of the good that it has done. We were all talking about coming out earlier. Do you think, Sophia, if you'd have been able to access social media when you were thinking about coming out and read other people's stories anonymously from behind our keyboards, as we were just saying, that makes it feel a bit safer, a bit less engaged, it would have been easier for you? 
Potentially, yes. And I am just about young enough to remember MSN and the messengers and online groups, which did exist, even though some of them were guys pretending to be ladies, um, which I figured out eventually. Uh, But yeah, I do remember those. So I I had those. I did grow up with them. But I still found that there were books and having always been quite a bookish person, I felt it was just as rewarding to read a story or listen to a musical, I know, really, really gay, about somebody's coming out experience than it was to to find them online. And I think like we were talking earlier about having some of the control over our stories and our own narratives that social media has potentially taken away from us. I don't wish that social media had been around when I was in college. I'm delighted that it wasn't. Um, Riyad, concentrating on the positive, in terms of your activism, your boosting visibility awareness of some of the issues that affect us, surely that's social media is a really important weapon in your arsenal. Yeah, it's an amazing tool, you know, for us as a community, for the everyday queer person to just um, put their life out there and desensitise non-queer eyes to their existence. Um, you know, it, it, that's what I find is actually just as important as the, you know, shouting for, for rights. Um, and that's what I try to do on my platform is, you know, look at my boyfriend, look at my accepting parents, look at my lovely um, queer, but also very boring life. Um, and then also look at this thing that I really, really care about. And I need you, straight follower, to come with me on this journey. And But if they are invested in the other elements of my life, the more mundane, everyday stuff, then the likelihood is that they will um, come on board for that. So, for example, when I do something like um, MasterChef, a mainstream program with a, a mature audience that are, you know, by and large, straight and cisgender, and I get a, a wave of followers from that cohort, um, they're now going to be, by default, exposed to uh, the life that I lead. And I think that that is an amazing thing. So um, without, I truly believe, without social media, um, we would be miles behind where we are now in terms of change because it's a way of holding people to account, holding brands, holding broadcasters, holding journalists to account when something doesn't um, fit with us and, and work with us in the way that it should. Absolutely. Lewis, do you think um, when people, when members of our community have a go at each other on social media, do you think sometimes it's it's motivated by that internalised homophobia or biphobia or shame or discomfort with elements of who we are, that they're spotting other people and feel that negative response so they lash out at them? Not always. I, yes, that, that, that definitely happens. I almost got involved, despite trying to be above it all. <laughs> I almost got involved in a, in a Twitter spat. It was, last, it was a while ago. Basically, I have a friend. He's really young. He'd done a podcast, and basically someone was calling him out. And I can't remember whether it was publicly or whether it was they were DMing him. But basically, because in this first episode of the podcast, they didn't have a woman on. And so they were like, this is a, this is a man's that you don't have a woman on. And I was, I was livid. I was like, he's a young queer person. He's literally putting all of his time and energy into this. He's not doing it to be mean to anyone. He's got guests lined up that, that are female. You know, we have all these hashtag be kind movements and then people forget. And this and this was yeah. literally a woman in, in her 40s, well known in our LGBT movement, won't be named, coming after someone that was, I think, 21 at the time. And I was livid and ready to go to war over it. And he was, he asked me, just please don't, like, don't don't that's not so i didn't um so to answer your question i think it comes from all walks of life and it's just not good and one of my biggest worries is young queer people are seeing this and being like 
I want to get involved in that. Yeah, but actually, funnily enough, can I say, one of the things I love as an older person um, on social media, older person, 46, just in case anybody can't see me and thinks I'm older than that, <laughs> is I love um, experiencing energy, the points of view, the experiences of young queer people that I wouldn't necessarily get in real life. Sorry, I'm going off topic and Sophia, you've got something to say. Sure, well, I just thought I would point out as the woman in the room that, you know, some of the criticisms that are levelled at me are also intersected with misogyny and people don't necessarily like to see a woman doing spoken word or talking about her desires. Sometimes you're in a public space and you can literally feel the dislike ripple around the room. It's easy to say, oh, Sophia is a mean girl, Sophia is a narcissist, Sophia thinks very much of herself. And I agree, I've also been running a radio show for over a year. Sometimes you can't get the people and then people will say, well, why don't you have X on? It's like, because I'm producing one of these a week and this is what you're getting this week. I know, I know, absolutely. Right, so we've talked about the negatives. Let's talk a bit more about the huge positives and how we can move towards a healthier relationship with social media. Riyad, you've written things about this before that I've loved. Can you tell us, so one of my things is, you know, I always tell people you can have a detox. You can unfollow accounts that promote division. You can follow ones that make you feel better about yourself and your community. You know, what would you what would you say to this kind of thing? If people are finding their social media is bombarding them with negativity, what would you say are some tips to steering them towards a more positive experience? Well, this is it. You know, social media is your own curated feed. It's not like, you know, you're going on the Times website and you just have to accept what's what's served to you there. No, you can make it what you want to be. So over the last year, for example, I've unfollowed a lot of the eye candy um, because I just felt like it was making me feel crap about, you know, how I looked and wasn't uplifting me. And I followed loads of um, anti-anxiety accounts, mental health accounts and clean eating, um, amazing like comedians and artists and just it's sort of. I, I look at my mind now and, and how many hours a day I'm on social media, both personally and for work. And I want my mind to, at the end of the day, feel nourished and uplifted rather than like I've been eating junk and candy all day. And that, that is the, 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 the thing. I think as well, the, the detox thing is great. And it doesn't, I think people are all or nothing. A detox isn't something that you just do um, when you're lying on the beach in Spain. I'm on a detox because I'm on holiday. No, you can literally have a detox once a day. You can say after 7 p.m., the phone doesn't go on. And also, I don't sleep with the phone. The phone is in the other room. So it's not the last thing you look at at night and the first thing you look at in the morning. Um, and I also I also set up a time limit on my Instagram app. So it, it bleeps at me when I've been on it for more than an hour. And it just gives me a little mental check. So I remember, okay, I need to put it down. Brilliant. All fantastic advice. Sophia, you were saying earlier, you you know, you want to tell people they don't need to have an opinion on everything. Another thing I'll put to you is, um, I would say really good advice is don't go on social media and express any opinion if you're angry, frustrated, tired, drunk. Um, you're more likely to get triggered and post something you may regret later. What do you What do you think? Do you have any rules for your own use of social media and how you what how to have a positive experience? Well, mine is also very wholesome, and I 
it's a conscious choice, you know, a lot of it's photos of my baking and my cat and all of that kind of thing. And I'm just trying to put some positivity out there. It's not all about, you know, the achievements that me and my friends get up to. And you often find that when you are posting about creative achievements and so on, you often get actual tumbleweed, whereas pictures <laughs> of your cakes and your cats, total winners. So sometimes I get a bit bored with that, but also I do actually like to put some positivity out there. So it, so it is a conscious choice. And I do agree with you, really don't do it when you're drunk my the only tweets I've ever regretted have been after several wines at Pride and it's also the things that you know you say when you're being bawdy and loose or whatever with your friends that it's just not going to translate so think about the kind of Alcoholics Anonymous you know halt hungry angry lonely Lonely, tired tired. don't tweet (laughs) right Lewis what about your policies you know um Sophia has mentioned um putting positivity out there Riyadh mentioned using his platforms to amplify other voices do you um find when you're putting positivity out there that makes you feel better about yourself rather than looking at a lot of gorgeous bodies and you just feel bad about yourself (laughs) um well what was I going to say? I was going to make a joke about posting my own gorgeous selfies. I'm, sh- I'm sure your body is gorgeous. I'm um, sure your body is gorgeous. I'm part of the problem. Um, no, I'm joking. <laughs> I've got what they call covard, not covid, covard, which is when you put on weight um, because you've had a baby. So there you go. Anyway. Um, so what's your, what's your policy in terms of having a positive experience and using your channels? Is there anything you stay aware from? Yeah, look... I don't like social media. I really, I really think it's a bad, bad thing, and it would make me happy if we just got rid of it and kept, kept, kept it in some forms. Because I do think, kind of, what Riyad was saying about being able to find other people like yourself and and that kind of thing. But even after everything we've said, that's such a sweeping statement. No, I know, but I just, I just, I, <laughs> anyway. Look, here's the thing: we do have them. They do exist. So w- my policy is different based on what social media it is. You know, Twitter, I very much like use it to post other articles about bisexuality. I'll put a few clips out from our podcast. Um, It's also there because sometimes bisexuals that need to reach out to me can do it in the DMs there. So it's it's there for that. And I think that that's all it needs. Literally on Instagram, I I follow a rule. It's like a cute picture of my kid. The next post is a picture of me. And the next post is something to do with bisexuality. And I just formulately do it. I don't... Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at your Instagram from now on and follow yeah. and watch the formula in action. It is, yeah. I just that's it because I don't want to get too involved because I've I've had really really negative experiences of it and I just I I do it in my way and that's it. Right. So just to try and end on a positive note, I'm just gonna say hate and negativity will always exist, whether it's in real life or on social media. We can we can take control and learn how to manage them, whether it's avoiding them, detoxing. So, right, so that's my little positive spin before we go. And I'm desperate to ask Ria, I don't want to say thank you for joining us. I need to ask you, how's Claire, your gorgeous Russian blue cat, while we're talking about cats on social oh. media? Well, I mean, everyone needs to know, I'm going to put this out there into the ether. I have my gorgeous Russian blue partially because of you, Matt. <laughs> I know, and I've got gorgeous see. Russian blue. You asked me, no. would I recommend one? And I was like, yes. We were at a, at a uh, pride function and I came up to you and um, I was hooked. Yeah, she's amazing. She's changed my life and she's saved me during lockdown. My little pal, I, I adore her, yeah. I love her. Please put even more pictures on social media. I will. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Lovely to chat to you. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. And now I'm going to talk to Sophia Blackwell. 
Sophia, tell us about your radio show because we talked a bit about it last time. You've mentioned it earlier today. And I saw from social media that you've just hosted the season finale. I have. And it's really funny that you should have Call for the Summer because I used that on my sort of big pop episode earlier in the year, which is largely an excuse for me to play sort of 10 or 12 tracks that I really loved from LGBT artists. And that just earwormed us for ages. My wife is still walking around singing it, which is great. And I also even spent three hours, like this was my geek side coming out, creating a mashup between that song and Symphony by Clean Bandit. And I was just like, I've lost the plot entirely here, especially when I played it and it was not very good but I was like, I've spent three hours doing this you're gonna listen to it. it's only three minutes long it'll be fine um so yeah I have become obsessed with radio and audio and soundscapes and it's really interesting to think about you know are we happier as writers or are we happy talking to people because you know writers are quite nosy folks we like to know what's going on and when I first got into a, a radio studio in late 2019 to be on the side that you're currently on Matt I just felt like I'd come home which I wasn't expecting like that's happened only a couple of times in my life before first time doing spoken word was the strongest time I felt that and that will always be my first love well funnily enough I was going to say to you even your writing a lot of it has been um, performed you know spoken word whereas for me it isn't for me mine is very my words are very much on the page but I it's interesting you said that about writers and radio because for me writing is still an act of communication and doing radio doing audio interviews chats it's only another it's just another version of, and isn't it? Do you see it as being different strands of the same thing? I do, absolutely. I think they all fit together and I'm starting to think more. I'm currently writing a non-fiction book about poetry and spoken word is the chapter I'm on at the moment. And it is really interesting when you think about the art forms that are presented as a dialogue or inter interactivity with the audience that are actually not interactive. Like spoken word is billed as interactive and authentic. and like It's actually not because it's just you talking at an audience and also you could be lying. Um, and it's the same with things like stand-up comedy, you know, it's a choreographed, it looks like it's interaction, but really you are the person in the driving seat when, when you're doing it, or at least you should be. Whereas actually radio is different and podcasting is different. It is like having a discussion. The only thing is, can you then say that's art or does art always have to be a little more firmly curated than that? Ooh, interesting question. So your show is on uh, is out in South London. It's on Resonance FM. Are you, so we've just said you've had the season finale. Are you hoping to bring it back? If so, do you have any plans to do anything different? It's an interesting one. The, the show was originated by Rosie Wilby who passed on the gig to myself and Stuart who to begin with because she was on a book deadline now that baton has passed to me and I am on a book deadline so <laughs> it won't be back in that guise and under that name until next year I don't think but we have obviously I've curated a lot of it from home which means that I have access to the sound files so I am hoping it will have a life in podcast form and also as you may know I've produce the Polari podcast with yes. Paul Burston and I'm hoping to obviously well I will be doing more of those so those will continue and whenever I create the book I will also hope to have some audio to go with it so a kind of multimedia like genuinely multimedia not just putting a label on something and going look it's an interactive experience it will hopefully be in my case but I'm just working on that at the moment. Well you've mentioned the Polari podcast and I was going to ask you about that anyway what have there been any 
standout moments for you because it's all communication with other writers, isn't it? So, you know, that is obviously going to be an area in which you're going to smash it. Well, for me, the biggest high was still doing the first one, which we recorded at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in a lockdown light period last year when restrictions were still very much in place and the management were extremely observant of them, but we were still able to be in the same space. And that was just a real high to be able to actually capture some of the live excitement of Polari and to try and express that in an audio format. After that, we had a couple which were based entirely on Zoom gigs. And while they were wonderful, I do like taking the snippets of the audience, the things that they say, you know, somebody laughing or dropping a glass or falling over or whatever in the corner. I like to maintain that and and just try and get across a sense of of what Polari is like. But I know Paul would say this as well. We're talking about reaching people and the podcast and the Zoom gigs that Paul has been diligently doing. Paul Burston, absolutely. Uh, Paul Burston has been doing is that the Zoom gigs have reached people who wouldn't necessarily be able to come to the Royal Festival Hall or to the Royal Vauxhall Tavern and that can only be a good thing. And so you've mentioned your writing, you're on a book deadline. We talked a couple of weeks ago about LGBTQ plus representation in publishing. You're also the co-chair of Hachette Pride, the LGBTQ plus network in the publishing house. What are your feelings about the direction things are moving in because we came to the conclusion um, in the previous episode that things were getting much better. I think things have come on in leaps and bounds and I think that also speaks hopefully for other underrepresented or historically excluded communities as well. I think it's just about making sure that the art we make, and one of the reasons why I like working at Achette so much with imprints such as Dialogue Books and Little Brown and Virago, is that there is this sense that the books are very loved, the authors are very taken care of. And one of the things that I've seen in slightly darker times in publishing is when somebody is taken on as an experiment and then they haven't been given the chance to shine or that then becomes an excuse. So you didn't sell and therefore we won't be recommissioning you. I think- Oh, I've got an experience of that <laughs> no, in my past, literally word for word. That's another conversation after we've finished recording. Well, that does not surprise me at all. And I've, I've heard it from a lot of different groups, not just LGBT plus people. It's difficult being the only one on the roster and you know, it can go badly for you. But you can also do what you did, Matt, and you can find your own voice through another channel, which in your case was working with Unbound. And then you've gone on to be published in in a variety of different ways in a variety of different formats. So, you know, partly we have to kind of seize the initiative ourselves because we're never going to have it as easy. But I think the important thing is, is that the art is created by us for us, like what we're doing right here, right now, as opposed to, you know, having to justify ourselves constantly and just go who is this book for I think we've become better in the publishing industry in my lifetime at answering that question oh I love all those thoughts I love the idea of seizing the initiative for ourselves tell us about but going back to spoken word and what your plans are for the future now that covid restrictions are lifting do you have plans to seize any more initiatives when it comes to live events? Uh, I would love to fit in a couple of festivals before the end of the year. It was something that I did constantly in my 20s and 
it's something that has always been a huge part of my life. So I'd, I'd love to return to shouting randomly at people in, in a tent. A couple of instances of that would really make my year. And there are, of course, some, some venues that I still want to crack, which I haven't yet. So I can put them back on the list. And I think one of the things about lockdown that was a bit of a relief was not having FOMO because no one was doing anything unless you were like Kim Kardashian. Now people are doing stuff and it's like, right, I better get on it. You know, as you say, I don't know what to do. You know, you're literally, it's very hard to plan your time at the moment, especially when you don't know what's around the corner. But I guess, did we ever know? Well, whatever you get up to, even if you don't know, we shall all look forward to it. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Sophia Blackwell and Lewis Oakley, are still here. And now we're going to be talking about queer relationships versus or alongside straight cis relationships. So when the producer of Love Island said that having LGBTQ plus contestants on the show would present logistical difficulties, quoting, this reminded us of the differences between dating and relationships for queer people and our straight cis counterparts. But what exactly are those differences? And is there anything that any of us can learn from the relationship experiences of the others. I'm delighted that we're joined now by Juno Dawson. Juno is a best-selling author, screenwriter and journalist. She's written columns for Attitude magazine and Glamour. That one documented her process of transitioning. Her books, which are written for young adults, include the global bestsellers This Book is Gay and Clean. Both of them brilliant. I've read both of them. And she was the winner of the Queen of Teen Award in 2015. She's also recently an actress and has had roles in Holby City and the BAFTA award-winning I May Destroy You. Juno, thank you for joining us. Hiya, you're right. Hiya. First question, seeing as we're talking about relationships, this is completely legitimate. (laughs) You got married to your gorgeous partner, Max, a few weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Yes, finally, after two postponements. You got there in the end. Fantastic. So before your wonderful relationship with Max, you've written a lot about dating and even said, I remember at one point, that you gave up hope of finding love as a trans woman. So what changed? Did you just strike it lucky with one individual or was there anything bigger that changed? Was there anything you had to change within in terms of your approach to dating? Oh, 100%. I think looking back with a bit of hindsight and it is and I know it's it's become incredibly kind of worn advice but if you can't love yourself how in the hell are you gonna love somebody else (laughs) and I was basically selling myself short and I think I allowed myself to be in relationships with with men who were not treating me properly and actually two things happened one I transitioned and two I went into my 30s and I took everything I had learned from my 20s and applied it to my love life and and so I basically set my standards higher and I didn't I basically vetted out some dreadful men and and you know when I started dating as Juno you know I, I came up against some really dreadful partners and some some of whom were borderline abusive and I was just like, absolutely not. And and I started kind of setting trials for prospective dates. 
you know, like, would you, are you prepared to date a trans woman in a brightly lit public place? You know, I, I became much more rigorous in my vetting process. And, you know, as Juno, I dated two or three really great guys, actually, some really, really nice guys. Um, one guy, I, I won't say his name, I wrote about him a lot in the gender games, but one guy, it was just too soon in my transition. And I had a lot of work to do on myself before I could really commit to somebody. But then by the time I met Max, I'd been out as trans for about, I'm guessing five years. And I was ready and he was ready and, and the rest is history. Right, so you mentioned there's loads in there that I want to pick up on when I brought in. (laughs) There's loads to unpack when I bring the panel in. But you mentioned your book, The Gender Games, and going back to this central question that we're going to be discussing, the tagline of your book, The Gender Games, also brilliant. I read it. The is the tagline was the problem with men and women from someone who has been both. Obviously, it's more of a provocative title, but you did identify as a gay man before you transitioned. So I would love, going back to this central question we're discussing, what insights can you give us into the differences between having relationships and dating as a gay man and a straight woman? See, I'm going to throw a big spanner into the works now, which is the further and the older I get, the more I chime with the word queer, which I know we've talked about this personally, I know it's not your favourite word in the world, but the nice thing that I like about queer is that it can describe me at any stage in my life. So as a weird queer kid who just wanted to be a girl, as a teenager who thought they were gay, as an adult in my 20s when I was all over town doing outrageous things, and then in my 30s as a trans woman as well. And so that's why I really like that word because it kind of it describes my otherness at any stage. Well, can I However, just can I just quickly interject? I did used yeah. to hate that word. I'm coming round to it now. I think, I'm glad. I'm really yeah, glad. I think I had to get over the you know when it was directed at me as an insult. But you know, of part course. of the energy and the dynamism of the young queer movement has helped win me over. Anyway, go on, carry on. But all I can really offer to this conversation is is the experiences that I had when people perceived me differently. And there was a big difference. And and there's lots of kind of pros and cons and shifting balance of privilege in that now, by and large, when Max and I book into an Airbnb, people unless they've literally heard of me, don't know that I'm trans, you know, because I'm, you know, kind of short and I've got long hair and stuff. And so people just see us as any straight married couple. And of course that comes with all kinds of privilege. You know, when when we go into a restaurant, people don't give us funny looks. People don't ask if we want twin beds when we check into hotels. You know, and those are the things that happened to me in my 20s when people thought I was a guy and I was dating men. You know, I remember once I was making out with some guy on the street, classy, in Brighton. We've all been pe- there. <laughs> and people spat us, you know. This group of lads came back and literally spat us. You know, that doesn't happen now, but... You know, before I got married a couple of weeks ago, you know, there was some awkward conversations about, you know, have you ever been known by another name? And I was like, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I've been through the Gender Recognition Act, so I probably didn't need to do that. I've always legally been a woman, but, um, but you know, I still had to have that conversation. So it, it's a tricky one because that, that 
all I can really offer, like I said, is my personal experience. And, and certainly now that I'm perceived to be a straight woman, yeah, I'm treated a lot better. All right, that's fantastic. So I would like to bring in the other woman in the conversation, Sophia Blackwell. So um, talking about gender in relationships, I think this opens up a really interesting area because one of the most striking differences between LGBTQ plus relationships, queer relationships, and those between heterosexual cis people should be that traditional gender roles don't creep into ours. The idea that one person does the housework, looks after the children, while the other is the primary earner. Do you think if we're looking at differences between queer relationships and straight cis ones, we should theoretically have more gender equality? And what do you think, how do you think that plays out in your real life experience, Sophia? I think uh, theoretically we should have a better division of labour and I don't know whether that works in practice. When I think about it, on the way here I was thinking about my straight female friends and a lot of them have very equal relationships with their husbands and the division of domestic labour is is quite equal. What I struggle with is I don't know how I would have been at dating guys. Uh, I don't think I would have liked to have coped with some of the things that you read about these days like ghosting, breadcrumbing, that sort of thing. And lesbians, you know, they're, they're not perfect, but they can't they do they do avoid some of that and we, we do tend to be serial monogamists so we tend to avoid that that side of things entirely and just kind of move in with each other immediately so <laughs> I've, I've always liked that uh, my wife and I play to our strengths we have the saying that Helena is logistics and I'm details so you know she does the logistical work and I make sure everything looks good and makes sense and that works for us we don't try and make each other do things that you know we don't do we pick up on the other person's slightly weaker areas and try and lean into that well can i just say actually in my relationship i um you know what you sometimes get is the more feminine partner doing more traditionally female in inverted commas activities and in mine i am the more femme of the two of us i tend to look after the house and do the cooking in my head that is because I work from home, my other half doesn't, I have more time to do these things. And I do, when he's commuting at the end of the day, I have half an hour an hour when I do that kind of thing. But I do sometimes worry, are heteronormative gender roles seeping, sneaking into our relationship? And then I think, how far is that from... Who's the man and who's the woman? As we used to get asked as um, gay people. Right, Lewis, you're nodding. So you're a bisexual man, you're in a relationship with a woman. Is there any way in which your relationship is any different to, to straight cis people of the opposite sex being in a relationship? Totally. I mean, I think this is the thing. Um, bisexuals, by and large, date outside of their own sexuality if that makes sense so usually they're dating gays or dating straights or, or whatever um so it is odd and i think because i was in a relationship with a guy for so long um when i was young it was then hard to go out dating and people had to remind me of like no you can't do it so i always remember after i'd broken up with my ex-boyfriend i was going on the date with a girl and my housemates at the time were both girls and the the whole conversation about pain came up and because i was like well when I go on dates with guys, like, we just split it. Or 
the older one <laughs> picks up the bill. So I was like, we're just going to split. And they were, they literally laughed at me. And they were like, you can't do that. You are the man. She is the girl. You have to pay. See, and I was like, can really? I just say, are we still doing this? Right, Juno's <laughs> gasping. I wanted to gasp. Every time I watch First Dates or First Dates Hotel, I am staggered that the man always pays for the date and the woman always oohs and ahs coquettishly and says, oh, you know, really? But, yeah. and the, but the gays or queers or whatever, they always split it. Yeah. So there is an instance there of us bucking traditional gender roles, isn't there? Yeah. So so that's one example as well. And I think maybe maybe the attitudes towards sex are a little bit different too, where sometimes I was like, oh, actually, a girl's not going to like that I have slept in the same bed as a guy I've slept with, even though, like, well, we're not going to sleep together again. We're just friends now. So stuff like that, where it's like... When I was with my ex-boyfriend, that wasn't an issue. Where, but now, date you know, dating straight girls that that can be so. It's really odd. I find like with straight people, the the most politically correct way I can say it's like, oh, you're very particular about the way you like things. Oh, there's all these little rules that there weren't there before when I was just dating um, someone of the same gender. It's 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 odd. I think we're all evolving. I think that. Same-sex relationships will evolve. I think that for so long, um, same-sex relationships kind of go off like, well, we know what straight relationships looks like, so we replicate that. I actually think, you know, now that we're kind of in a, a more equal world where everyone can be honest about themselves, that I think what's going to be really interesting is how those same-sex relationships evolve and be like, we don't have to copy the straights anymore. Juno, when we chatted earlier, you said you talked about being attracted to unhealthy relationships and partners who didn't respect you. I had similar experiences when I was younger. A lot of queer people do. Do you Mm -hmm. think this is a direct result of hearing things that make us feel shame about who we are when we're growing up, being told we're dirty, disgusting? I don't know if you remember the phrase queers can't love. That kind of thing is going to affect our approach to relationships, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that there is so much shame and that's what has been really interesting about my my now husband, which is that he is a straight man who has, who has grown up free from that shame. And what that kind of meant for him is that he's been dating since he was about 14 in a way that I just hadn't. So even though I'm 10 years older than him, he has kind of had more experience in relationships than I have because he just got started so much younger. So we kind of came to the table with the same amount of kind of relationship experience for want of a better phrase. And it's been really interesting to me to live with someone who didn't have that shame. And actually, you know, I grew up in the 90s when I had plenty of representation in film and TV and I had Dawson's Creek and and all kinds of things, you know, telling me that as as a young gay man, that relationships were available to me. I kind of grew up in the immediate post-AIDS era, I guess. But yes, still my, my... relationships in my 20s were doomed not so much because of gay men but because I was a trans woman and that was always the thing and I look back at the relationships I had in my 20s and really as much as I would like to say it was them it was me (laughs) (laughs) which is nice it's nice that I can admit that now but actually what you I mean obviously yes you have the very individual experience of you were a trans woman when you were dating as a gay man, so it was never going to yeah. work. But what you've just <laughs> said, what you've just said about your husband, let's use that word, is yeah. making me feel more hopeful about the future because actually, 
Shame and internalised homophobia or queerphobia are going to be diminishing now. They have to be. And it makes me think that in the future, the only difference between dating for straight cis people and queer people is going to be a smaller dating pool. I think so. I think what struck me as soon as I started dating post-transition was that guys in their 20s were not in any way, shape or form surprised at the existence of trans women. And I did, and you, you said yourself, you know, when, when I started my transition and it was when I was living in London, we were hanging out a lot. You know, I sort of, I felt it was more important to be a woman than it was to have a boyfriend. And I, I felt, well, you know, if I, if I never have another boyfriend, you know, at least I get to be myself and that's better. But, you know, very quickly I realised there was loads of guys who liked dating trans women or trans men. Some of them go too far and really fetishise trans people. But, you know, when I when I was dating, there was loads of guys who just didn't really seem to care. And they did seem to be a bit younger in that they've grown up online, they've grown up on the internet, and nothing really surprises them. Well, that's interesting you say that, because surely one of the difficulties, of, if we're talking about differences, one of the difficulties of dating as a trans woman is you do sometimes have to filter out men who want to use you as an experiment or satisfy yeah. curiosity or tick a box. And that mm -hmm. must, if you have a run of that, I imagine that can get you down. Oh my gosh, that is soul destroying. But that's one of the things you get really good at really quickly, which is the colloquial phrase is a chaser. You get really, really good at spotting the chasers because of course they're just, they just want they just they want a largely a sexual relationship yeah, and the yeah. first thing you can do to filter them out is being like right so where are we going for dinner because you'd be amazed that so many fell at that first hurdle and so you just as for myself i had to really prioritize my safety and my sanity and i would advise any trans person out there listening to do the same Fantastic. Right. I want to now look again at some of these differences and I want to bring things back to you, Lewis. We've talked about sex. Gino's just brought up the idea of, you know, everybody's approach to sex in relationships. Um, you mentioned earlier attitudes towards sex amongst men and certainly amongst gay men. As a bisexual man, you would date gay men. Mm -hmm. Um the idea of having lots of sexual partners, promiscuity is very normalised. I remember a member of my family recently, a straight man, saying to me, Matt, I've bedded nearly a hundred women and thinking that was something was going to shock me. And my response was, is that it? <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, in, you know, if we're looking at what different communities can learn from each other... Um, in the gay male community, that is such, it's so normalized, hypersexual behavior, lots of sexual partners. Um, is this something you've struggled with? And, and if you're playing different communities off against each other, is there many, are there many lessons we can learn? It depends what you're looking for yourself. If you're looking for some hypersexual activity, then it's a, it's a match made in heaven. It's very interesting because this, the, and I, I don't mean to be rude when I say like the straights, but the, the straights are trying to actually catch up. In, in a certain with their apps now because I think for a long time in the street community you had to kind of be seen as like a man that like is yes I'll marry you when actually you just wanted sex so you would lie about it but now on the apps they're actually saying look we just want you to be honest about it so I think they're kind of mimicking that that that, that where it's like you know actually I am genuinely looking for a relationship where I'm, I'm just genuinely looking for sex and there's no shame in that so um 
it's different. And what you've got to think of as well is a lot has changed. So the reason in the straight community they're so funny about the hypersexual stuff is because people could get pregnant before. You know, we, we obviously we've got the birth control pill now and, and people can take their own reproductive um, abilities into their own hands. But I think that, you know, if you think about how we got here, I think a lot of people think like, oh, it's a conspiracy. It's, it's not. We just kind of evolved out of the cages. S certain things happened and that was why men and women have got these weird ways that they interact with each other now. I was actually just going to jump in because I wanted to say to you, do you think the idea that with your insight into the gay male world, do you, because I think this, um, that knowing that there is so much sex readily available out there can make it difficult for some people to commit to a relationship and settle down. I'm trying to find some things that we can learn from the straight cis community. <laughs> Help me out here. Go on, what do you think, Lewis? <sighs> It's a weird one because I, th I think for a lot of bisexual guys, knowing that there is that hypersexualized community in the gay world has actually been part of the biphobia. It's like, oh, so you've slept with 40 men and only two women, not really bisexual, are you? That kind of thing. And it's like, well, actually, the two communities' attitudes towards sex are different. That, that That's kind of an issue. And what's really interesting is I get a lot of emails from bisexual guys that have been in relationships or marriages for you know a decade or so. And for whatever reason, it's, it's broken down. They're going to go on a date with a guy for the first time. Something Juno was saying earlier about this whole maturity in a relationship. It's like, yeah, they they as a straight in the in the not straight is in the in the opposite sex relationship. They've got twenty years experience in the yeah. same sex relationship. They've got no experience. They're like a giddy fourteen year old again, and they've and the worst thing is they've had all this extra time to really overthink it. So you you know you're. I was, I was getting emails from this one guy and he was like, you know, I'm going to have sex with a guy for the first time, blah, blah, blah. And I'm in my 40s and I was like, it's going to be awful. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. It was a brilliant answer. I want to. So, Sophia, I'm trying to find some things that we as a queer community can learn from straight cis people. So let's look at. So we've talked about hypersexuality with gay men, lots of sexual partners with lesbians. Statistically, um, there are more divorces amongst lesbians. Um, did you know this? No, I didn't actually. <laughs> yes. I, I knew there were some, but I didn't know there were more. According to the Office of National Statistics, lesbian couples <laughs> have the highest divorce rates in the country. So what can can lesbians? I'm trying to come on, help me out. I'm trying can to Can we learn from straight people? Can we learn from I've been thinking people? about this. I've been thinking about this. Um I think there are there are some things that, that we can potentially and the second thing isn't maybe something we can we can learn, but one of the things that might be good about having you know, heterosexual style relationships for want of a better term. Lesbians often don't do hypersexual behaviour. We tend to do monogamy. Um, we're not great at polygamy. Uh, I generalise hugely. There are some of my friends who, who don't necessarily fit into that, but, you know, we do like to settle down. And one of the things that is good about a relationship to people of different genders is that there's a bit of tension and a bit of otherness, whereas women have the, the urge to merge. And I think that straight people can learn from our nurturance, our tolerance of each other, our tolerance of maybe less than perfect body types historically. That's something they can learn from us. But we can also learn to celebrate what's different about the other person. And for that, I find straight relationships can be quite an interesting benchmark or something that I can take something from. I don't think that we should have to be like straight people, but I do think that, you know, we were talking about coming out earlier and I was reading in um, Daisy Jones's new book, All the Things She Said, a terrific title, and she's talking about a teenager who was 
making or watching the real L word, not the TV L word, but the documentary L word with her parents. And there was a couple that were a bit more stereotypically like, you know, there was one who was butch and one who was femme. You get somebody kind of putting a bow tie on, putting a tie on, going to work. They have the white picket fence. You know, my wife says, you know, I'm a white picket fence woman, you know, and I, I like that about her. And that was helpful for this teenager and her parents. So I don't necessarily think it's, it's a bad thing. If that's what vibes with you, then it might help other people. Right. Fantastic. We've only got a few seconds left. Juno, I'm going to come to you last for our final words. What do you think about what Sophia just said about something we can maybe learn from straight cis people, the idea of otherness? You know, you're now in a relationship, two people of different genders. Does this bring attention that maybe we as a community, a wider community can learn from? I think that the straight community are starting to learn lessons from the queer community. I Woo! think it's the other I think it's the other way around. I think now straight couples are looking at open relationships or polygamy in a way that they would have never have talked about, it, or at least not talked about it openly ten years ago. And I don't know many gay male couples who aren't in some way open or have certain rules around being allowed to have additional partners outside of their marriage or relationship. And I'm starting to see that for the first time in straight couples as well. And I think that's really exciting because who set those rules and when, you know, those rules about monogamy and patriarchy were set so long ago. And I actually want to see more straight cis couples going a bit more queer, to be honest, not necessarily sleeping with people of the same sex, but looking at the rules gay couples have challenged for decades and thinking maybe we can challenge the rules as well. Brilliant. I love it. That's the best note to end on. Let's break all the rules. Juno Dawson, thank you very much. Thank you. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Now, finally, we've got a few minutes left just to talk about a little light topic. I want to talk about holidays because there's so much discussion in the media about how restrictions on foreign travel are going to change. Many of us are dreaming of our next holiday or even planning one. But what about you guys? If you are going to be able to travel, where do you want to go and what are your plans, Sophia? Well, nowhere outside the UK, I don't think this year, which is a bit saddening. Um, but just all I can think about today is going to Greece because a guy came into my office today and Saul Brown talked about his recent trip to Greece and I was very jealous. So I would just love something really basic, um, food, blockbuster novel and just staring out at the sea. The kind of holiday that I used to hate as a young person, I'd be up for now. But yes, just uh, lovely parts of the UK for me this year. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I don't want to sound spoiled or privileged, um, but um, I sometimes, a holiday for me is about getting away from everything, switching off from my life, stepping out of it. It's actually not just about fun. It's a kind of mental health activity. It's about well-being. And unless I've been aware, if I've been mm. in a different country, different language and culture going on around you, I don't feel like I've quite escaped. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to do down holidays in this country. What do you think, Lewis? You're nodding sagely. I get you. Yeah, it's nice to go abroad. I'm, I mean, <laughs> it's weird you touched on this topic because basically that was my one task for today was to book a holiday and I haven't done it. But I, here's the thing. Someone at work said to me the other day, look, 
unless you're uber rich or uber chilled don't go abroad because the the, the restrictions are changed i was like you know what? that's so true and i'm not rich or chilled so let's stay in the uk um and i also think as well i've got my 12 year old stepson got my 10 month old daughter it's just too much with kids to be messing about with restrictions and flying places so we're gonna stay in the uk where is yet to sit this is the part and here's my thing. I know yeah, this is yeah. this is not being rude, but I'm not spending over a grand to stay in the UK, and they want like two. Grand. Oh, it's very. I'm I like, know, it's what? Expensive. No, I, I'm staying in the UK, but I want it to be under a grand for but where it, we stay. But it's interesting what you say. You know, me saying a holiday is a kind of you know relaxing thing. It's about mental health, well-being. Actually, when it's when going away is bound up with so much stress, mm. and actually when you spend a lot of money on it, and you're worried you're going to lose that money, there's all this pressure and anxiety. Is that why you've just decided not to even bother, Sophia, and you're just going to? stick here i think so it's just too much and it would obviously be wonderful to get out of the country and i was very glad that in 2019 i had a last minute trip to italy to go to the town where some of my family are from and i didn't intend to go but just kind of jumped on at the last moment and you know obviously i didn't know what was around the corner but i had two holidays in 2019 but yeah by the time that 2022 rolls around i will be ready to leave under any circumstances and which destination is going to be top of your list uh probably Probably back to Lisbon, which is one of my favourite places on earth, or Barcelona, one of oh, the two. Nice. And how about you, Lewis? Um, I actually think Greece. I think I'd like to do Greece. Yeah. But presumably, now that you are going on famille and you've got this diverse group, a twelve-year-old, did you say, and a little baby? Yeah. Um, the kind of places you would have looked at before, it's all different. Now. Well, the gay cruises are out, aren't they? <laughs> um, but um, no, it's weird because obviously we're engaged as well. We want to get married abroad on a beach. So we've kind of got to do some traveling and kind of find this perfect beach. So we'll start in Greece we'll, and, and we'll just see where we end up. I was going to, you know, I was literally just going to say, but Greece don't do gay marriage, do they? But obviously that doesn't apply to you. This is how I'm, so at the moment I'm getting married and thinking about all these things. And the number of people who said to me, so my boyfriend's just Jewish, and people said, why don't you get married in Israel? It's like, we can't. <laughs> My boyfriend's got a house in Italy, speaking of privilege. And people said, why don't you get married in Italy? We can't. <laughs> and it's literally not even occurred to these people. But you don't have that restriction. You just need to go and experience a lot of beaches and a lot of co- a lot of countries to decide where to get married. Well, you see, there are some perks to being bisexual after all. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. On that note, we're going to wrap up. That's it for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Sophia Blackwell, Lewis Oakley, Riyadh Kalaf and Juno Dawson. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I'm on at Matt Came Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk.